Where do babies come from? Well, now before you go running and covering your child's ears, I'm not going to get into any of the details. I'll leave it for that for mom and dad to answer this afternoon. But the question is before us, Because it is easy to assume in our story this morning that the characters in this story were just a couple country bumpkins that didn't know how babies were made. The characters of our story, an 80-year-old couple and a virgin, they weren't clueless about how babies were made. They understood that 80-year-olds don't have kids, neither do virgins. Thus, what is set up for us is a question, can God do the impossible? For the modern man, for the natural man, he cannot reconcile in his mind a virgin birth. Frankly, he can't even come to understand how an 80-year-old couple can bear a child. The story is against all of our natural reasoning. To the modern man, what we see in this is nothing but fiction. And a hundred years ago, the church endured such false teaching from theological liberals. Denying the virgin birth. Denying the miracle of the incarnation of Christ. But friend, what we arrive at this morning is the very heart of the text. And that being faith. Of course, you will not believe these stories if you do not believe that God created the world out of nothing. The doctrine of ex nihilo, that God spoke into existence, that which was nothing, if you can't believe that, friend, you're not going to believe a virgin birth. If you don't believe that God could speak into existence a cosmos which was not in existence, out of nothing, meaning he had no raw materials to work with, he, he created the very raw materials by his word. If you, if you reject that, well, friend, you will reject the virgin birth. And if you can't accept the virgin birth, then you will not accept an empty tomb. You cannot accept Christianity apart from what we consider this morning. Some will ask, well, do you have to believe in a virgin birth in order to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Christians for 2,000 years have emphatically said, yes, you must believe in a virgin birth, or more accurately, a virgin conception in order to be saved by Jesus. What we have before us is not a secondary doctrine, not a third-level doctrine. This is a primary doctrine. All of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ hinges upon an understanding rightly of what God reveals in His Word. To deny a virgin conception is to deny the very heart of what Jesus is doing on the cross in Calvary.
I approach this text with such seriousness because it is easy for us to brush them aside as non-essential. Friend, this passage runs counter to everything this world loves. This passage runs counter to all that this, the natural man, the modern man, affirms. That with God, nothing is impossible. Do you believe that this morning? Of course, Luke has picked up his pen to write for this very reason. That his friend Theophilus would have certainty in the things that he's been taught. We learned last week that the real purpose behind this book of Luke is that Theophilus would have a a sense of assurance that everything he has come to know about his Savior, Jesus Christ, is true. And so like a good reporter, Luke gathers up eyewitnesses and records in his gospel eyewitness accounts. How do we know what Elizabeth thought when Mary approached her? How do we know what happened when Gabriel spoke to Zechariah? How do we know how Mary responded in worship? Because Luke talked to them. Luke recorded down what they experienced and delivers it to us today. Like a seasoned reporter, he gathers these in order to give us assurance that the story that he tells is the greatest story ever told. The true story of the eternal Son of God coming and clothing himself in frail humanity in order to die the death that they deserve, that he might be their Savior. This morning as we go through this passage, we're not going to read it in its entirety in one read. Uh, It's quite lengthy and I don't want to lose you. So I'm going to put before you the main idea and then prove it to you as we walk through the text. Here is what I believe Luke is seeking to communicate through these early verses in chapter 1. Namely this, that God is a promise-keeping God. That God is has made promises, and He is keeping His Word. God has made promises to His people, and He is fulfilling those promises, though hundreds of years after making these promises. Therefore, this promise is that Jesus is the Savior King who will fully and finally deliver God's people. God is promising a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. But Jesus is not a mere man, as we'll see in this text, but that He is the eternal Son of God. He is the promised Davidic King who will rule and reign over God's kingdom. So the purpose of our time this morning is for us to reflect in worship. When we come to a realization that God is a promise-keeping God, that God keeps His Word, we ought to worship Him. We ought to praise Him. This is a part of His character. God cannot lie. God cannot lead us and deceive us. God is a promise-keeping God. 
And like Mary, we ought to approach Him with humility and faith, trusting in these promises that He gives. And so in our passage, we're confronted really with two main characters. It's a number of characters, but really two main characters in our story. First is Zechariah. He's a priest. And secondly, a well-known character to many of us, Mary, Jesus' mother. Both of which respond differently, we see in the text, to the promises of God. One is described as righteous and devout. One who was a God-fearer, one who obeyed the word, but who wavers at the promise of God. The other was from a was a nobody from a no-name town in Galilee. He was no, she was no one special. She wasn't anything significant. But yet, when she hears the promises of God, she responds with humble faith, believing that God can do the impossible. And so we see in verses 5 through 25, God saves even the righteous. God saves even the righteous. And then secondly, in verses 26 through 56, we see that God saves especially the humble. God saves even the righteous. And God especially saves the humble. Look with me here in these earlier, early verses of chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. We're told by Luke, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. In these very early verses, Luke presents to us a problem that needs to have a resolution to it. Like a good storyteller, he, he presents us with conflict, with, with something that needs to be resolved in the narrative of the story. We're told of Elizabeth and of Zechariah. Elizabeth is a daughter of Aaron, which means that she comes from priestly lineage just like her husband, Zechariah. We're told that they are devout, that they're God-fearers. There, we're told that they follow God, that they're righteous before Him and walking in all of His commandments, yet they did not have a child. Now, in this particular culture, it would have been to their detriment not to have a child, not to have a name, particularly the fact that they come from both sons, they're, they're both of them sons of Aaron. Therefore, their child would have been of great stature, coming from true blood, if you will. No intermarrying within the tribe. But yet to be barren and childless, as we see even in the text we'll see in a moment, brought upon Elizabeth derision and shame. But in the midst of their sorrow, God meets them and promises them that they will have a son. Just like the prophets of old that were barren. Just like Abraham and his descendants. When there is an impossibility, God shows up. And we're told in verses 8 through 17 that Zechariah is promised a son through an angel. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, 
According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Zechariah got called upon that day. He got to do a job that he, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. There were thousands of priests that attended the temple. And it was a one in a lifetime opportunity to be able to go into the holies of holies and present incense before the altar. To enter into a place that priests would only go one time. No one else had seen it. I'm sorry, rather, he had never seen it in his lifetime. This is the very first time he had ever. So this is a big day in the life of Zechariah. He is excited about the, the responsibility that he has. And we're told in the text, verse 11, as he goes in to do his priestly duties, there appears to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Naturally, Zechariah is in there doing his priestly duty, doing what he's supposed to do, and nobody's supposed to be in there but him. And lo and behold, this guy shows up, and he is afraid. He knows that he is about to meet with an angelic being. He knows that he has a divine messenger who is going to speak to him. Now, fascinatingly enough, when you read the Bible... Every time a human being comes encounter with an angel, the response is fear. Why? Well, it's because when the mortal meets the immortal, there is a natural response that we are mortal, that we are not supernatural, that there is something that transcends us as a human being, and therefore fear enters into it. And naturally so, Zechariah is afraid, but we're told the angel, verse 13, whom we'll learn later is named Gabriel, said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he will not drink wine or strong drink and will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He realizes very early on that yes, he's going to bear a son, but... This is going to be a very unique son. This isn't going to be just any old son, but rather the the angel promises him that this son will be set apart by God for a particular ministry. God had promised centuries earlier that before the Messiah came, there would be a forerunner, one who would prepare the hearts of the people. And so in Malachi 3.1, we're told, By the prophet Malachi, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Through Malachi, the nation of Israel was promised a forerunner. Someone in the spirit of Elijah who who would call the nation of Israel to repentance and faith in the promises of God. And here Gabriel is telling uh, Zechariah that that his son John would be such a prophet. He would be the one whom God had called upon 
Notice here in the text also, we are told in verse 15 that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. In other words, he would be set apart by God for this particular mission even before he was born. God had plans for this son that was coming to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that plan was to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Again, a fulfillment of what Malachi promised in Malachi 4.6. Literally here, he, Luke quotes from Malachi. And the point here that we need to see is the ministry of John the Baptist. The ministry that he will fulfill is that of preparing people's hearts to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, we'll see also in the text that Luke is, is making clear that John is not greater than Jesus. That he has a particular ministry role. And even John embraces this. We'll learn in the next couple weeks when, when we come to the text where, where John says, I must decrease that he would increase. In other words, John wasn't the Messiah. He simply was the one plowing the way for the promise to come. Well, the story goes on, though. Does it just end there with rejoicing and gladness and celebration? Notice verse 18, what Zechariah says. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, my wife, is advanced in years. Like Sarah, who upon hearing the promise given to Abraham that they would have a son, laughs at God. Zechariah responds, this is not possible. There's no way. I'm an old man and my wife, boy, she's pretty old too. How is this even going to happen? He doubts God's promise. I want you to think for just a minute where Zechariah is. Zechariah is now down at the 7-Eleven meeting with somebody. He's not down at home. He is in the temple. He's in the Holy of Holies. He's in the very place where God's presence was visibly made among his people. And yet, he doubts the promise given to him. He knows who he's talking to, but yet he doubts. Friend, it's a reminder to us that one can be close to the things of God and yet miss out on His promise. It's a reminder to us this morning that you can know a lot of facts about God, but not really trust God and know Him and believe in Him. Well, verse 19 tells us that the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. In other words, Gabriel says, do you not know who I am? The, the God who, who created the cosmos? And I was sent to speak to you and to bring good news to you. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days that these things take place because you do not believe my words which were fulfilled in their time. You see exactly what he's being punished for. You did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. This promise fulfillment motif overlays the entire story as we see the contrast between Zechariah and Mary. Where Zechariah doubts God's promises, Mary believes them and trusts that God can do the impossible. Well, as the story unfolds, the people are growing anxious. They know Zechariah should be out, so they know something's up. Something has happened in the temple. 
And so there's some tinge of excitement among the people. What had happened? Who did you see? What did you hear? And, and, and so they're longing to hear a response, and, and he comes out and he can't speak. Imagine you have the greatest news you've ever heard in your life, and you can't tell a single soul. That's judgment, isn't it? That's a sense of judgment upon you. You, you have this wonderful story to tell, and, and you pick up the phone, and you begin to call all your friends and family. Nobody's answering the phone. And so you start talking to strangers about it. Zechariah can't tell anyone. Can't tell a single soul. Because he didn't believe the promises of God. But despite his unbelief, despite the fact that he wavered at the promise of God, God still was merciful for he delivered on his word, didn't he? Look there at verse 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. God fulfilled his promise. Our passage this morning reminds us that our God is a promise-keeping God. He's the one who brings about his perfect will in his perfect way. We learn here to trust God's purposes, however impossible they may seem. We want to avoid the lack of faith demonstrated in Zechariah. That's what Luke is trying to teach us here. A man even described as devout. Even those closest to God can struggle to believe his promises. Friend, do you struggle to believe the promises of God? That he'll never leave you nor forsake you? As we sung earlier, that he will bring you home? Perhaps your cause to doubt this morning. We must guard our hearts from doubt by meditating on this regular pattern. The Bible could be summarized, Old Testament, promises made. New New Testament, promises kept. God keeps his promises. In fact, Paul would say this, that all the yes, that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. Your, Your faith is strengthened as you meditate upon the truth that God has always kept his promises. Zechariah had heard the promise of God, yet wavered in doubt. It reminds us that Jesus came to save even the righteous. One of the themes that we're going to see in Luke's gospel is Jesus confronting the religious leaders because of their, their unbelief. God came to save even the righteous, those who didn't think they needed a Savior. But where Zechariah wavered, we see Mary humbly believed in the promise of God. Look here at verses 26 through 56. God saves especially the humble. We're told in verse 26, it was the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's bearing of John, that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now it's important very quickly to note on this, Nazareth is a no-name town, all right? In fact, somebody in other gospels said, what good come come out of Nazareth? They're like, Jesus from Nazareth? whoop de doo Ain't nobody good come from Nazareth. It's a reminder to us that Mary was not a particularly special person. In other words, she didn't come from a family lineage that everybody would be like, wow, this is impressive. Look at this girl. She is going to make it in the world. More than that, we are told she, she was a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Now, these are like little breadcrumbs that Luke is leaving us. 
not only to make note of her virginity, but also the fact that she was engaged to someone of David's lineage. And the virgin's name was Mary, we were told. And Gabriel goes to her in verse 28 and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, just like Zechariah was, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Jesus means God saves, Yeshua, it, the Hebrew word meaning God saves. So, so that's a theme that, that Luke is presenting to us. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Very different than the promise given to Zechariah and his son's role. Here we are told that Mary's son would be God's salvation. He would be the very one that God promised through the prophets. Just like we heard earlier in 1 Samuel 7, that God was promising to raise up from the descendants of David a king who would reign forever, and Jesus would be that king. God had promised a thousand years earlier that one of the sons of David would be a glorious king who would reign forever. As you read your Bible and you go through the, the sons of David, you're like, nope, not that one. No, he has promised. Nope, nope, he didn't come through. It's just a litany of failure after failure. You think your grandchildren are a mess. Just look at David's. But yet God was long-suffering and patient with his people. Though his people rebelled repeatedly against him, that didn't stop his promises. His will wasn't thwarted by man, but it continued to, to work patiently, working out his purposes. And the particular point we want to see as we draw from this, that Jesus is, in our text, told by Luke, firsthand from Mary, and the encounter she has with Gabriel, that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Now this is connected to His role as King. Uh, Psalm 2, if you want to think about that more later, there's a connection between the Son of God and the kingship here. But the point we see is that God will give Him the throne of His father David. Jesus will be King. And this will be important as we study this throughout the days ahead. Well, how does Mary respond to such a grand promise? What was her response? Well, look here at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Pretty natural question, isn't it? Hmm, how is this going to happen? But fascinatingly enough, she leaves it. Gabriel responds and she's like, okay, sounds good. I mean, just trust blindly in this wonderful promise that seems impossible. Notice the response. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is mystical thing is going to happen, and all of a sudden you're going to have a child in you. And she's like, all right, let's do this. When do we start? 
blindly trusting in the promises of God. And, and Gabriel goes on in verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. God was fulfilling His promises long foretold. Well, as the story unfolds, Luke tells us that Mary that goes on to travel to meet with her relative Elizabeth. And this wonderful encounter happens when Mary arrives and the announcement is that Mary has come, John, who is now about six months in gestation, leaps in Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth exclaims by the, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Behold, the mother of my Lord is before me. As a testimony to Mary about what is already going on in her life. And a testimony to us this morning to give certainty that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and that John was who he came to be. Well, our passage ends this morning, and I wanted to spend two more seconds here before we conclude, by looking at Mary's Magnificent. Now, it's called Mary's Magnificent from the Latin word that we find here in the very first verse, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's a very familiar passage, no doubt, to many Christians. And it is Mary's response, isn't it, to this promise, this confirmation, as she worships the Lord for the wonderful things that He has promised. But Mary steals this from someone else. She adds to what someone else had already said. Thousands of years earlier, through another prophet named Samuel, God had promised the nation of Israel a Davidic king that then promised an eternal king. Well, Samuel's mom, like Elizabeth, was barren and couldn't have a children. But God promised Hannah to, that she, she would have a son. And Hannah burst out in exclamation and praise. And here Mary uses a lot and, and borrows a lot of, of the same language. A reminder of the similar theme that God saves the humble and the contrite. Look at what Mary says there in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In other words, she acknowledges that God has come to save sinners. Now here's a little aside here. Mary is affirming she's a sinner in need of a Savior. So we reject the doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church teaches of the sinlessness of Mary. Mary was not sinless. She acknowledges it right here in verse 47. She needs a Savior. She needs to be saved. She needs to be delivered from her sin. And she worships, worships God because He has sent the Savior, Jesus. She goes on, For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. In this song of praise, Mary acknowledges the wonder and glory that God saves a contrite people, that God saves a humble people, a people who recognize their need of a Savior, a people who are poor and needy, who are sick and sore. God doesn't come to save the proud of this world, but those who recognize their need of a Savior. She exclaims that God is able and powerful to save. His arm is is strong, she says in verse 31. He can save. Now, fascinating enough in Luke's gospel here, it is a woman who proclaims the truth of the goodness of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a theme that Luke is going to use and pick up to see the place of women in Jesus' ministry. And I think it's an important point. Not merely that she was a woman, but, but her social status was one of humility. She was an outcast. She was not the, the one whom you would think would be saved. Not a king. Not a queen. But a humble servant. Our passage this morning reminds us that our God is faithful to save the most humble of people. That He came to save the down and out, those of humble estate. He does not come to save the proud and the arrogant, but those who are in need of a Savior like Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that God didn't save the wise of this world, but the foolish. God didn't save the powerful of this world, but the weak. It's a reminder to us of His mercy and His goodness. He sent His Son into the world to save sinners like you and like me. We're, friend, perhaps you're visiting with us this morning, and you thought that, that Christianity was all about, I'm better than everyone else. That, that's not what Christianity, that's not true Christianity. You see, this room is filled with people who are are not afraid to talk about their brokenness. Who are not afraid to talk about their sin and their need of Jesus. We are messed up people in this room, alright? You came to a messed up church, alright? We need a lot of Jesus. It's a reminder that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is for sinners like you this morning. And God has given you the promised Son that if you would believe in Him, know that He came to die for your sin, you can have eternal life with Him. If you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, just ask any one of the people sitting around you, and they'll tell you how to follow Jesus. We see here in our text that Mary's faith is one to be emulated. When she hears the promises of God, she doesn't waver but rather believes. One of the truths that that Gabriel reveals in this passage is that nothing is impossible with God. Friend, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that nothing is impossible with God when you get the, the news that you have cancer? 
Do you believe that there's nothing impossible with God when, when your entire world crumbles before you and your family breaks apart? Do you believe the promises of God even when you struggle in sin? Take some time this afternoon and meditate further on what Mary says in this text. Draw your heart in worship. Worship the Savior that she worshipped. See that your Deliverer has come in the person of Jesus Christ. She was a sinner in need of a Savior. And so are you and I. And find a Savior, a perfect Savior in Christ Jesus the Lord. You know, we struggle to believe promises because we rarely deliver on our own promises. No doubt today you've probably made a, a handful of promises. Maybe perhaps yourself, to God, to your neighbor, to your, your spouse. Or I promise I, I'll clean my room. Husbands, right? I promise I'll clean up after myself. I promise I'll, I'll take the trash out. I promise I'll, I'll get better at showing my affection. I, I promise I, I will, I'll get this done this week. Promises made and promises never kept. We fail to keep our word. And because we fail to keep our word, we somehow think that God will fail to keep His word. Or perhaps we don't feel like God will keep His word. You see... It's not based on your feelings, friend, but it's based on the revelation that God keeps His Word. God keeps His Word. God promised years earlier through the prophets that He would send a great Redeemer, that He would send His Son to die for our sin. Listen to what the Lord said to the prophet Zephaniah. The Lord your God is with you in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The prophets told of, day, of a day of salvation. A day of rejoicing, of singing and dancing. And friend, that day has come. We're no longer waiting for Jesus to come and die for our sins. No, He has come. And He has died. And He is raised again. And now we wait with anticipation for Him to come again where He will rule and reign over the nations and all will bow their knees before Him. Friend, trust that God will keep His Word for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and thankful that You came to save sinners. I pray this morning that we would find joy and peace and satisfaction in the promised one of God. I pray this morning that we would see that Jesus and that Jesus alone can satisfy our deepest longings. I pray that you would draw men and women to you this morning, that they would find that you are the one who will bear their weary and heavy load, that he will save you, that he will restore us, and that He will confirm us through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is for His glory and our good we pray in Christ's name. Amen.